Welcome to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Watts. If you want to change your drinking habits and create a peaceful relationship with alcohol, you're in the right place. This podcast explores the strategies I use to overcome a lifetime of family alcohol abuse, more than 30 years of anxiety and worry about my own drinking, and what felt like an unbreakable daily drinking habit. Becoming an alcohol minimalist means removing excess alcohol from your life so it doesn't remove you from life. It means being able to take alcohol or leave it without feeling deprived. It means to live peacefully, being able to enjoy a glass of wine without feeling guilty and without needing to finish the bottle. With science on our side, we'll shatter your past patterns and eliminate your excuses. Changing your relationship with alcohol is possible. I'm here to help you do it. Let's start now. Well, hello and welcome or welcome back to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast with me, your host, Molly Watts, coming to you from uh, a little bit cloudy Oregon, but it's been doing this thing where it's cloudy in the morning and then burns off and it's beautiful in the afternoon and evening. Yesterday was just awesome in the afternoon and evening. So I think that's what it's going to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. If we start the rain pattern again, you all know I'm going to start whining. So hopefully that's not the case. So before we get into this week's show, first, I have a prize winner of some alcohol minimalist swag. Remember that if you want to be entered into the drawing for the alcohol minimalist swag, all you got to do is leave a rating or review a rating. If you leave a rating, you're going to have to send me a little note that says you did it because I don't know. I can only see the numbers. I can't see who left it. But if you leave a review, I'll be able to read it and see who left it. And this review comes from SJD0618. So if you are SJD0618, uh, this was your review. I stumbled upon this podcast and it is just what I was looking for. I struggle with binge drinking weekend warrior life of the party. The party girl I've been this character so long, I have been convinced this is who I am. I don't want to or can't believe the story of no alcohol in my life. There are times I only have the single drink. Thank you for helping me to start to realize I can change my party girl story. And uh, so appreciate SJD0618, your review. If you, SJD0618, want to send me an email, molly at mollywatts.com, and let me know who you are and where to send your alcohol minimalist swag, I will get that out in the mail to you. And so for anyone else, all you got to do, leave a review of the podcast or leave a review of the book anywhere you listen to it, anywhere you find the book, and you will be entered to win as well. Today on the show, I am continuing the alcohol and series, and this week's topic is important. I am talking with Bij Christy Carpen, all about alcohol and trauma. Bij has been on the show before. I connected with Bij through moderation management. She is a life coach and an alternative therapist out of New York City, and recently added to her very long list of training and certifications with becoming an IFS practitioner. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as well. Bij is just wonderful. And I always love having conversations with her around alcohol and understanding our, our own feelings. She's just fantastic. And 
we wanted to get together and have this conversation because so many people who are turning to alcohol are victims of trauma. And so this is Alcohol and Trauma. And here's my conversation with Bij Christy Carpen. Hey, good morning, Bij. Thank you so much for being back here on the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. The last time you were here, I think it was still called Breaking the Bottle Legacy. So welcome back to the show. And I'm I'm really, really, I mean, I it sounds odd to say I'm excited about this conversation because it's uh, it's a deep conversation. It's a, an important conversation, but I am really excited and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you, Molly. I'm, I'm excited to be back here too. And um, yeah, we picked a really nice light topic for today. Right, <laughs> right. right. For a Saturday morning, it's just it's super, it's super um, light and easy, but no, it's not, but it's, but, it's so important. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is important is to lighten it a little and normalize Mm -hmm. it a little. Yeah. You know, because everyone carries some trauma in them. Yeah. So we're talking about trauma. We're talking about, this is another in my series of alcohol and conversation. So this is alcohol and trauma. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to have this conversation because as I shared with you before we got started, the statistics are pretty staggering. Uh, 70% of people who are being treated for substance use disorders report being victims or survivors of trauma. And so mm-hmm. trauma, like we said, and so we want to get really into it first about defining exactly what trauma is, because there are, you, as you share, have shared with me, there are a lot of different versions of trauma, and it's important to understand that. And so talk to me a little bit about how we can even go about defining trauma. Um, Well, there are so many different types of trauma. Basically, really, I mean, there's, well, there's single incident or capital T trauma, people refer to like an acute um, stress disorder where something happened, right? Right. Um, There's chronic trauma, like kind of pervasive trauma of growing up in a situation where you didn't feel part of things or you had a caregiver who was for whatever reason not able to connect with you in a, in a nurturing way you know this that's more like relational trauma complex ptsd that would be called developmental trauma what what goes on as you're <laughs> developing um and uh so there there's a lot of trauma that people carry around that people walk around with that uh, they have no idea is they wouldn't even define as trauma or know that it was trauma or, um and uh, if <laughs> as if it weren't enough that we might have our own trauma, it also turns out that we can inherit trauma from our parents (laughs) or grandparents and on up the line, right? Um, There's intergenerational trauma. There's a wonderful book called uh, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin on that topic, uh, family inherited trauma, racial trauma, uh, a couple of books on that, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem, The Inner Work of Racial Justice by Rhonda McGee. We have Holocaust trauma, that many people carry from their their um, ancestors or relatives, uh, and now we have pandemic trauma, yeah, right. <laughs> and which we'll be giving and giving for many generations. I have no doubt. Um, and so I like to say to people, unless you skipped over childhood, you probably carry some kind of trauma with you, right? Yeah. And so maybe maybe a lighter word would be stressors or something like that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and because trauma can carry out a big, heavy implication. And sometimes it really is. And sometimes it's, it's stuff that you don't even realize is trauma or traumatic. Right. Um, or you just override it, override it, override it. You know, no, that was when I was a kid, no big deal, you know. And you don't realize how it's still in your system and still living with you. Right. So I think there's, yeah. And so you kind of hit there, right there is there's, there's different kinds of trauma. And, and I think people want to just uh, put it into that box of, well, I, I never had a big incident, right? I never had that something happened to me that I can point back to and say that was traumatic, right? I mean, like if you don't have that, um, then you sit there, you may wonder, well, is there trauma? Do I have trauma? Is there, you know, so I think one of the reasons I think you t- said to me, and I, I, I really loved this, is one of the ways that we can really check in with ourselves or really understand how important it is to uncover if there's trauma in our lives mm-hmm. is really how we're, how we're functioning in the world, you know, how, yeah. how we're feeling. And so talk to right. me about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, the important thing to know about trauma is that um, it's not in the event. It's not it's in how the nervous system responds to the trauma. Mm-hmm. That was what I learned in day one of my three year somatic experiencing right. trauma training. It is not in the event, it is, it is in, it's, a, it's a response in the nervous system. So um, different people respond to trauma in different ways. We see this in true crime all the time, right? Oh, I can tell he's the murderer because he didn't look upset. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And maybe that person's response to trauma is to go into a freeze state. Right. Um, and, and this is why many different people can experience the same traumatic event and have very different responses to it. 9-11 is a great yeah. example. I was thinking right? about that. You're in New York City. So obviously that's a really um, pertinent mm-hmm. and powerful example because people had a, a wide range of responses to that. That's right. And So I think that's important too, because it's important to not judge what your response is, right? Not judge Mm -hmm. if you're having a a traumatic response, a bad response, a good response, you know, whatever. It's just Mm -hmm. being in tune and really understanding if you are not, uh, I talk about this in my book about when people are turning to alcohol to try to buffer away stressors or, you know, things that we, so if we're separating the two, right. If you're really struggling with just basic living, like can't get out of bed, can't keep Mm -hmm. a job, can't do all that. There's probably some sort of trauma that is there that you are not, you know, you're not in touch with. Mm -hmm. And even as something as simple as having a strong reaction to something, Mm -hmm. having a strong, you know, um, if you find people or a lot of times say, oh, you're overreacting, um, mm-hmm. it's probably because your system's responding to something that's not actually happening, something that's from the past that your body's mm-hmm. still holding. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So let's talk about that. Some of the common responses to trauma. So, yeah. So either, whether or not we recognize trauma as the, as the instigator, what are some common, that this may be one of those things where if you are experiencing some of these things, you can look back and or you might need to do some discovery. Yeah. I would say if you find yourself being, or people telling you you're overreacting, you're oversensitive, your emotions are very strong, or if you're a person who is just kind, constantly in the kind of go, 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 keep going, never rest, it's kind mm-hmm. of state. Um, all of these are fight, flight, or freeze responses, right? Just to, to 
the tra to trauma. And other, other responses might include flocking, finding others who will justify your point of view. Oh my gosh, you're right, he's such a jerk. Mm -hmm. Never should have said that to you. You know, that's a trauma response and not a bad one necessarily. Right, just a, one. Yeah, right, right. Right, fawning, dissociation, um, submitting can what is, be a what's, trauma. What's response. fawning? Say your boss is being difficult and you're having kind of a reaction to it. Uh, instead of maybe standing up to him and discussing it, you might, oh, you're right, okay. Oh, you know, I gotcha. That okay. could be, yeah, yeah that could be a, a, a response or submitting, or like just, just giving in to whatever it is, you know, association where you're just kind of like, okay, I'm not here. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and some again. This can sometimes be a good response. Can sometimes can be helpful, mm -hmm. um, but the chances are, you know, that your nervous system is responding. I'll give you a, a, an example from my own life. Yeah. I noticed that um, every time I would go into a doctor's office, I would get really cranky and. Um, kind of mean and this is you know <laughs> I tell my clients is they're like you or me yeah um, <laughs> not you can't can't picture that um and when I kind of dropped into my body and asked okay what's going on here what what am I responding to that's not actually happening and I remembered being in a very traumatic situation when I was six years old in a doctor's office Mm -hmm. and where the agency was completely taken from me. Um, my body was handled in a way where I didn't have control over it. Mm. My mom turned away. There was, um, uh, and that was what was getting activated in my system. Every time okay. I walked into a doctor's office, I would feel like of this lack of agency, this lack of control. It's like, don't tell me what to, don't touch me, don't, you know, kind of thing. And um, I realized once I realized that and I could kind of soothe that younger part of me, it's okay. That's, that's not what's happening now. You're right. all right. You know? Right. Yeah. You know, I talk a lot about the fact that the past um, only exists in what I think about it today. So it's like, that's kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, yes, be, but you have to be able to sometimes articulate and understand where it comes from first. That's right. right? Mm -hmm. And then you can soothe it. Then you can like, or, you know, use a, a, that more, present mind to be able to right. say, okay, you know, this isn't what's going on now. I am in control. I have this. So, mm -hmm. but, it, I, and that unconscious part of the brain, um, it's kind of important because that's a little bit about where addiction and trauma coincide, right? In that right. lower nonverbal part of the brain. Correct. It does not live in the reasoning part of the brain, not right. the prefrontal cortex, the Mr. Spock logical part right. of the brain. If it did, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Right. The trauma, right. trauma, trauma, and addiction live in the same part of the brain. They live in the limbic system, the amygdala, um, and now it turns out that um, with uh, Stephen Porch's polyvagal theory, you realize that there's a vagus nerve that connects the whole thing, the brain, all the way down to the digestive system. Mm -hmm. um, so that the the body is very much involved in the trauma response and in, in in the addiction response. And I see I see addiction as a response. Honestly, I see it as a response to trauma. Yeah. Well, I think that's the absolute truth. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I love like the work of. 
Dr. J- D. Jaffe is like, it's not, we can't, mm-hmm. we it, abstinence, like focusing completely on the activity and trying to stop drinking isn't where we need to focus our attention. We need to focus our attention on what's causing the pain in the first place. That's why 70% of people who are being treated for substance use disorder are, are you know, are reporting that they are victims of trauma. So it's mm-hmm. obvious that the very, there's a high correlation between the two. I think too, but that's kind of what, why I wanted to have this conversation. It means there's a whole bunch of us, whether or not we ever develop a physical dependency on alcohol, there's a whole bunch of us that are turning to substances, alcohol, you know, anything else to try to buffer away these, these traumatic experiences from whether they be from childhood or even, you know, in our adult lives. Right. Absolutely. Um, this part of the brain that we're talking about is really um, a very kind of simple part of the brain. It's right. Not, <laughs> it's not that bright, right? Right. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, see alcohol, drink it, feel better, remember where you got it. Right. Do it again. Trigger behavior, reward, yeah. brief relief, brief relief, right? Do it again. So, like addiction expert of Judson Brewer wrote this book called The Craving Mind, and he talks yeah, about Dr. this. Jad, Dr. Jad's been here before. He's been oh, on the show. Love him. Love him. I've studied with him. Um, the reward center of the brain learns uh, where to go to get more, right? And it thinks the more I get, the better I'm going to feel. So there's this trigger behavior reward thing that happens. And then, um, but then we add in the results. Right. I feel crappy. I hate myself, right? right. <laughs> Which leads directly back into the trigger. And right. shame leads right back into the habit loop. And yeah. whether we're shaming ourselves or someone else is shaming us. So when a family member or a partner criticizes your drinking, it's unlikely that your prefrontal cortex is going to get activated. It's going to be this other part of the brain, right? right. It's not going to be the prefrontal cortex that says, yes, okay, you're right. right. I'm going to drink less. Um, it's more likely the criticism will activate the emotional part of the brain and activate that shame cycle. So you go right back in. Oh my God, I got a drink. Now I feel shame. You don't know that's what's happening. It's not a lot of the time, but that is what's happening. Yeah. And I think it's really important. I, I talk about all these parts of the brain all the time, you know, the limbic <laughs> system, the, the mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex. I really think it's important for people to understand how their brains work in this sense, because it really helps you if you understand, I mean, just even creating awareness of the fact that you have this limbic system that is activated all the time, you know, in this, from the, our evolutionarily, it was set up to do this, right. It would help us survive. And Mm -hmm. so it's, I, I personally found for me, it was very important to, once I understood all of this, that it helped me to, Mm -hmm. um, to drop into the prefrontal cortex when my brain was sending out that message of, Hey, this is a really good idea to keep drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) um, my brain might, you know, I could go, Oh, wait a minute. There's that prefront, you know, there's that, that reward system just firing Mm -hmm. again. It actually Mm -hmm. isn't true. It's not Mm -hmm. a really good idea to keep drinking. (laughs) Right. Right. And the ability to bring on that prefrontal cortex, I think is harder for people who've suffered more and Mm -hmm. certain types of trauma. Yeah. 100%. Um, That's yeah. 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 I mean, a good way to develop that prefrontal cortex is meditation practice mm-hmm. because that actually is, is scientifically proved uh, through brain scans to uh, grow that part of the brain or um, activate. You, you see that people who, you know, they've done these brain scans with people like <clears throat> never meditated and then 
eight weeks later, 20 minutes a day meditation, and there's a lot more activity in the prefrontal cortex, a lot less activity in the amygdala. Which so is, you're actually yeah. able to be le less reactive. Fascinating mm -hmm. and absolutely wonderful. And I love that you brought that up. I know that that Judd Brewer talks about that a lot about the meditation mm -hmm. part of it. And mm -hmm. you teach, by the way, folks, I'm going to link it in the show notes, but Beach has a meditation, a free meditation class every Tuesday, right? Yep. Every Tuesday morning. Yeah. 8.30 to 9 Eastern. Yeah, 8.30 to 9 Eastern, and you can drop into that. So I, I appreciate you sharing that because it. I know that for me personally, meditation is really hard, but it is a skill and it is something that you can develop and it's something mm -hmm. that you can learn. And just like she just said, it's scientifically proven, folks, <laughs> to increase your brain's behaviors and free frontal cord. I mean, this isn't, and I love it because it's, you know, it's available to you. You're it does, it's not a drug. It's not, you know, you get to do it with your own mind. And I, right. that's right. Just, and this is something that meditators have known for thousands of years, but now science is getting on board and going, yeah, actually you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does. And uh, now the Western world goes, Oh, science proves it. Okay. Even though, if you do it, you'll know. You don't need any science telling you because you, right. you suddenly notice that you're not as reactive and you're able to kind of take those pauses and respond more skillfully when um, situations come up that are activating, upsetting. Well, yeah. And P.S., because this is harkens back to my, my previous podcast, but it's also actually proven to extend longevity, too. So there mm -hmm, you go, mm -hmm. folks. Yeah. So. And, yeah. and for those meditation averse people, um, there is there's a book called uh, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. I forget the author. Oh my gosh, I gotta um, find that. Yes, and there's actually a course uh, weekend being offered at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, um, this summer. I can't, I don't know the dates, but that might be something for people to attend. Um, because some people, especially if there's a high degree of trauma. They really have a hard time sitting with themselves at first, especially. Mm -hmm. And the old fashioned Buddhist way was like <laughs> hit them on the head with something or whatever. <laughs> very, very old school. And the Buddhists don't do that anymore, at least not in this country. But um, and, and now the thinking that there's a lot more trauma sensitive mindfulness being taught um, <clears throat> to meditation teachers and yoga teachers so that uh, people understand that it's not easy for everybody. And it's okay if you can't sit with yourself. It's just too much at first. And so you can learn other practices. And I talk about this some, sometimes in my meditation class. You can learn um, what we call informal, informal practices mm -hmm. that you can do throughout the day rather than sitting if that's too much. Or you can do walking meditation very slowly, mm -hmm. just being aware of your feet. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the... the Walk as though your feet are kissing the earth. I love that. Mm. So you're just paying attention to the feel of your feet on the floor or the feel of your breath. If that's not too activating for some people, it is. Um, and simple, simple things like every time you wash your hands, which you know we do a lot of now. <laughs> We've all learned <laughs> yeah, pandemic trauma in play. Is. Yeah, right. <laughs> every time you wash your hands, you can take that as an opportunity to notice where does the mind go when I'm not present with it, when I'm not present with this activity. It's the same thing on the meditation cushion. That's what you're teaching yourself. Like, oh, my mind goes there and you bring it back with friendliness. It's not like you're beating the crap out of yourself because you can't stay in this meditative state, right? So anyways, so a practice could be washing hands, um, noticing, oh, my mind's going into planning or plotting or worrying about what I have to do or, or you know, complaining, you know, why'd you say that stupid thing last night or whatever it is, it's going in these places. 
Um, instead, you can just say, okay, for right now, we're just going to be with this activity. You just tell the mind that it's okay, you can rest, we're just going to be here now. And you um, become very aware of like, what does it feel like to wash your hands? And it's actually kind of a pleasant experience for most yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, I love water. So like, <clears throat> to me, I'm like, that's, a, a, I mean, for me, water is my, is my soothing, my soothing noise. It's my soothing, mm. you know, to be essential experience of it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I just like water, right? So mm -hmm. I can imagine washing my hands being something that I can definitely practice with my with meditation. And I'm definitely one of those fidgety skeptics. So I have to be, <laughs> I have to get it. I mean, that's not I mean, I want to, I know it, I understand it intellectually. It's just hard mm -hmm. for me. So, yeah. um, well, let's it's talk a little bit easier yeah. in groups. I would say too, if, if you can go to a live meditation class or if yeah. you can take a class online like mine mm -hmm. or something, and you know, there are other people there doing it. And you know, the ten the tendency is at first you're thinking like everyone else is sitting there becoming the Dalai Lama and I'm the only one with this crazy <laughs> busy mind. But the fact of the matter is everybody has a crazy busy mind. And one of my meditation teachers, David Nickturn, says, if you sliced open the head, the heads of all those meditators, it would look like a Bosch painting inside. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so you don't know what's going on with other people. And you can assume that a lot of stuff is. And the practice is simply, it's a practice of returning. It's not a practice of staying in some constructed state. It's the practice of noticing with gentleness. Oh, where does my mind go when it's not here? Oh, okay. There it went. Isn't that kind of funny? Maybe you see a little humor in where your mind goes and then you bring it back and just say, oh, for right now, let's just see if we can stay here for one or two breaths before it wanders off again. It's like nice. training a puppy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, training a puppy. <laughs> it is. Puppy wanders off. You don't beat up the puppy. Oh, okay. Come on back here and maybe it stays a little bit longer the next time. I used yeah. to teach a lot of classes in um, corporations and they actually had dogs wandering in and out of the, the meditation room sometimes. Oh, well, then, there you go. Oh. Yeah. And so I would use them. As, okay, come here. And sure enough, the puppy would turn around and face the class in perfect puppy meditator pose and be all calm. And then, <laughs> and then a second later, it would go off and get interested in something else. So that's just like the mind. So you just bring it back with that same kind of humor and gentleness. I love that. Hey, everyone, just a quick break in the show to talk with you about Sunnyside. Now you've heard me talk about Sunnyside on the show before. I've had Nick and Ian, the founders here as my guests. I am just so impressed with them. They are deeply mission driven. They are building a service to help millions of people create a healthier relationship with alcohol with no pressure to quit or feel guilty. So you know, they are very aligned with everything I talk about here at Alcohol Minimalist. I wanted to share with you some thoughts and comments made by people in my group and my clients who use Sunnyside. I checked it out and was pleasantly surprised. I have used a few tracking apps and despised them. But the support, the daily check-ins, and the plan, yes, the plan. I signed up for three months yesterday and actually looked forward to the check-in today. I have no doubt this tool is a step forward for me. I just want to thank you to everyone who recommended Sunnyside in this group and all of your advice throughout. I'm having the best start to a week of moderating since I fell off the wagon in January. You work the plan and it works. Thank you, everyone. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take their word for it. I want you to check it out for yourself. Go to www.sunnyside.co slash minimalist 
to get started on a free trial today. So talk about how people can kind of explore their own relation between trauma and some of the things that they might be using to to buffer away those traumas. I don't want to, I don't want to say addiction because we don't typically talk about, we can talk about addictive behavior because drinking obviously is an addictive behavior, but my general, you know, this podcast is dedicated to those people who are using alcohol, maybe in a habit, habited way, or I know for myself personally, that I definitely developed a habit of over drinking because I was not because I was just like, I mean, yes, in my early days, I used alcohol just, you know, as a party, as a party thing. But then over Mm -hmm. time, it became something where I was using it on a daily basis to try to buffer away the stress of the of just of life, you know, I wouldn't again, I wouldn't go back as for me, I wouldn't say there was, there was trauma, at least in that big T sense of a word, but mm-hmm. definitely trying to buffer away. And I think there's things, you know, beyond alcohol, people tend to turn to, um, yeah. food, sex, drugs, gambling, technology, social media, <laughs> gaming, <laughs> etc. Lots. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what, what are they, all these things have in common is they take you away from where you are, right? right. They put yeah. you into, put you into some other state. So, um, a way to explore this for yourself, for people who are listening. I don't mean you, Molly. No, you've explored a lot. Hey, I'll take, I'll take all the therapy <laughs> online you can give me right here. You just do it. <laughs> so, so an exploration might be um, thinking like, what, what took you away from where you were as, as a child? Mm-hmm. Um, when things felt stressful, what soothed you? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was chocolate chip cookies. Maybe it was gaming. Maybe it was um, something else that kept you out of the house or kept you out of the situation you were in. And not necessarily bad things. Maybe you got really interested in something like sports or music. So it's good mm-hmm. to just kind of explore, huh? What you know? What what did I do with gentle curiosity? Where did I go? Um, and then maybe and you were mentioning. Um, I mean, there are different types of drinkers too, right? I mean. Uh, some people tend to go more for the social drinking, as you were saying right. when you were younger, you know, or more of an alone drinker, or we have crossover artists who do both. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I would tell, I love crossover so, artists. That's like, I guess yeah. that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with social drinking, I often, and I work a lot with parts work with IFS, which we uh, talk a little bit about if you want, but yeah. Um, I often hear, we'll hear someone say like, I feel like a part of me still thinks I'm 18. You know, this mm-hmm. will be like a 50 year old saying that. Right. Um, and, and so sometimes parts of ourselves do get stuck in the past mm-hmm. and a time when we felt like we needed that for survival. So then you might ask yourself, okay, well, what was going on when I was in college or whatever, that that partying part of you might've developed more strongly and maybe that part showed up at a time when you were feeling uh, lack of connection or isolated and you really wanted to feel accepted by people, mm-hmm. you know, and then it became habitual. So that might be, right. that might be a pattern of a social drinker. I'm not saying it is, but it's just right. like, that's how you would do the exploration. And with the alone drinking, you know, it might be a, a depressed or lonely part, isolated part that you're trying to soothe or numb. And then when you go back to like, well, what, how did I try to soothe myself when I was 
when I was eight or when I was little, you know, and you kind of ask yourself, it's amazing how much wisdom we have when we stop to listen. It might've been when you were eight and your mom was, wasn't present for, you know, couldn't be with you or, or wasn't able to either for emotional reasons or, or work or whatever it was, wasn't nurturing when you needed her. So maybe you found solace in taking a bag of chocolate chip cookies to the treehouse or something. Or maybe, maybe you found solace in video games. I like to tease people that video games are a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's always, so it's always interesting to look at um, what's underneath the behavior. Like when did something in you start seeking ways to change how you were feeling, mm-hmm. ways to take you out of however you were feeling into feeling some other way? Yeah, that is super powerful because I think that's, you know, one of the things I talk about all the time is about the fact that it's that feeling, right? Where we, we typically are using something to change how we, we see it as a way to yeah. change how we're feeling. I exactly. mean, that's really the, the, mm-hmm. the driver, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the, it, there's no other reason for us to, to take whatever it is that we're, we're turning to, we're doing it in an attempt to change how we are feeling. And, exactly. And yeah. And, and that's another thing that the meditation and mindfulness practice teaches us is to stay. <laughs> Remember that puppy? Right? Stay. Yeah stay. Um, It's okay to stay with what you're feeling. It's okay to to sit and see how, see if you can tolerate it. See if you can tolerate a little bit more than you might think. Yeah. It doesn't mean that if it starts to really overwhelm you, then no, but um, just see, just out of curiosity, do some experiments. Can I sit with this a little bit longer than I thought? Yeah. I talk about allowing the feeling, just allowing it to be Mm -hmm. there. We don't have to try to change, you know, it's okay. I mean, and I think that's also Mm -hmm. really important. I talk, I talk a lot about life's 50 50, you know, there's good and bad, we have to allow the bad to be there. We can't just want to not feel any, you know, any negative emotion in this world. That's just not realistic. You know, when things become, you know, overwhelming, then we're talking about a different, a different issue. Yeah. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in a day to day world in a in our in our lives, we are all going to experience good, bad, sad, mad, you know, we want to experience it all, right? I mean, that is right. the full human experience when we're able mm-hmm. to express and allow all of our emotions to be there. And yeah. and and I, I really try to encourage people to, that, you know, you are capable of handling any, you know, most emotions. Now, I wouldn't say that, again, I don't, uh, someone who's, who's experienced significant trauma or has that big capital T in acute trauma um, or, or something that's pervasive, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable in saying, you know what I mean? There, that, mm-hmm. that's, that requires extra work and that may require therapy and that may require mm-hmm. some additional tools. Um, Definitely. So I know in our, we, we asked, you asked, thankfully in both um, a couple of different, my group and in the moderation management group for some people, if they had some questions about this and mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions was, does chronic stress have the same impact as acute trauma in addiction? So do you, what Mm -hmm. do you want to say about that? Well, um, I think acute trauma is defined as single incident trauma. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure if that's what they were referring to. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, chronic stress, I would put in the same category as pervasive trauma. Mm -hmm. So you can call it stress, you can call it trauma, it'd be easier to call it stress perhaps um maybe you're in a work situation or home situation where you're constantly in a state of hyper arousal or hyper vigilance because it doesn't feel safe Mm -hmm. 
So, um, and we're not necessarily talking about physical safety, but also emotional or psychological safety. Um, and that can definitely have as strong an, imp an, as strong an impact as acute or single incident trauma. Mm -hmm. And so basically, yeah, what we're, you know, I think what we've, we've both said all along the way here is that it, there's, you know, statistically it's, it's proven that, that trauma leads, you know, whether it's, I mean, a, a single incident trauma or pervasive trauma, this is a, there's a high correlation between the two and addiction. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is 70% mm -hmm, mm -hmm. according to statistics. And so for anyone, even, you know, so that just means that anyone that is, that's starting to see a, an uptick, or if you've, you've noticed your, and, and maybe the pandemic, this is a really good tie into pandemic because the <laughs> pandemic drinking, you know, drinking has been on the increase, right? Mm -hmm, so if you're mm -hmm. seeing, uh, an uptick in your own behavior and an uptick in your own drinking, you might want to look and see what, if there is some sort of impact that might be having some kind of chronic stress that's happening. Yeah. And I think the pandemic really pointed to, um, how people's trauma responses are in their, right. how their nervous systems respond to trauma. So like, yes, you could say that right now we're in one big collective trauma, right? We're right, yeah. all in the trauma vortex together, but we don't all respond the same way. And we love to criticize other people for responding different ways, right? <laughs> but our nervous systems respond very differently. And this often reflects, as you're saying, old patterns of how our nervous systems respond to trauma. So if you think about how you responded, and again, not you, Molly, only, yeah. but how, <laughs> how we respond to trauma, how you responded to trauma in your past, um, you might notice that it it follows a pattern, how you've responded to other traumatic events in your life, how you responded to the feeling of unsafety or uncertainty as a child. Um, and some people become very insular mm -hmm. and um, there might be an old response from when they were kids and felt danger, you know, would they kind of curl up and hide somewhere? Other people went into survival mode. I put myself in that category. <laughs> oh, all my income went away. Okay, let's see, what can I do? Create, and I created the conscious drinking workshops online mm -hmm. to not just create income for myself, but to help all the people who are struggling, who also couldn't afford therapy at that point because you know they had lost their jobs. Um, but all the people that were struggling with uh, over drinking by teaching the mindfulness techniques and tools that have helped my clients. So my go-to response uh, to trauma is survive and help. And when I think about how did I respond to trauma as a child, it was, fight, survive, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, some people went into denial. Maybe when their systems became overwhelmed as kids, their go-to response was to pretend it's not happening, just to dissociate from it, right? And others became paranoid, believing it was a conspiracy, and maybe the pandemic made them feel unsafe enough to resort to an old pattern or belief from childhood. Maybe as children, they were perpetually gaslighted by a caregiver, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. So many different responses. Right. And, and I love that you said that. And I really do think that, yes, we don't want to shame people for whatever response they're having. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, yeah. I, I talked about this before on an episode about, um, you know, this, this whole trigger warning, um, there, there's actually been study on the whole, I think the reason that I am, am uh, always am trying to be careful about the big T versus littler, you know, whatever chronic stress is because I don't ever want to offend somebody who has had one of those truly single incident mm -hmm. traumas where it's yeah. very, um, you know, I, I would never want to, I, 
I feel like I don't ever want to invalidate something really, truly horrible that happened to someone with mm -hmm. what I would call my very minor, you know, <laughs> trauma. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just don't, I, I think that's why there's a tendency for people to want to, to, um, gradiate um, trauma so that we don't, mm -hmm. at least from my perspective, I don't yeah. ever want to, to, to intermix or to take away from somebody's really terrible, horrible incidents in their lives yeah. that, and, and try to liken them to the, to even the chronic stress that I, you know, sometimes feel from, mm -hmm. but I guess it's mm -hmm. not, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know that that's what I'm hearing you tell me is, you know, it's really more about what the body's experiencing. And if somebody has chronic stress, a pervasive, it, it really, you know, especially there could be a lot of things that have happened due to the pandemic to people, right. Or, or mm -hmm. that, that could cause a response for them. I don't know exactly what I'm saying there. I kind of want yeah. to topic, but you know what I, that's post-traumatic I mean. stress response for sure. Yeah. And, and I think what you're saying from what I understand and I agree, I agree with you. Don't want to take away um, or minimize, uh, I guess. Minimize. Yeah. Thank you. Um, someone who's had a very serious uh, single incident event or serious multiple incident events. Um, and at the same time, it's important to recognize that, as we, you know, as, as we said at the beginning of the call, that trauma is is not in the event as much as it's in the nervous system's response right. to the event. So um, I think there was another question on that Facebook page that was kind of about that, the one about the auto accident. Yeah, there was uh, some, it, the, the question was, I know some young people whose mother died in an automobile accident in which they were also passengers. I wonder what can be done to help them stay off the path of addiction as they enter their teens and beyond. Um, the husband takes the kids to movies, games, and out to eat. They haven't received professional help though. So that was the yeah. question. Yeah. That was the question. Yeah. And I, I think I responded, first of all, so sorry Yeah, obviously. to read that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just no words. Right. Um, and as far as the question of how to, you know, keep help them stay off the path of addiction, I would say that most, um, even though most addiction is rooted in pain and trauma, uh, not all trauma leads to addiction, interestingly enough. Right. Um, so a lot of it depends on how their nervous systems processed the traumatic event um, and how their nervous systems are, you know, it's kind of nature nurture kind of thing, how their nervous systems are set, set up in the first place. Mm -hmm. And uh, people respond very differently to the same traumatic event based on their nervous systems and their own conditioning and experience, their past trauma, et cetera. And a lot depends on how quickly they get support and what type. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if they have access to a good trauma therapist. Um, mm -hmm. And also um, often the addictive patterns are formed early in life. So if their habitual response to stress or trauma is to soothe with food, for example, they might be more likely to turn to alcohol or drugs later to soothe similar pain or post-traumatic right. stress when it arises. Um, and again, just the sooner they receive some kind of support, the better to help them navigate this. Because if people feel seen and uh, supported, even after any kind of traumatic event, the, the chances of recovering without a lot of post-traumatic stress are much higher. Mm -hmm. 
and thank goodness for this person's husband, the person who wrote the yeah, uh, right. email. They're just friends, I think, taking taking them to movies, games, and uh, things that she said. Um, because the more love and connection they feel, the more likely they are to recover more quickly, mm-hmm. the more yeah. support they have. So I think that that's a really, you know, I want to make sure that we touch upon this. And I and the, the last question we're going to touch on is, how do we know if our drinking is related to trauma or if it's just an unhealthy habit that we picked up? But one of the things I want to really make clear to people as we, as we answer this question is no matter what it is, whether you have trauma or whether it's just an unhealthy habit, there's hope for, there's hope for you. Mm -hmm. There's hope Mm -hmm. to change, not only change your drinking habits, but there is hope if you have trauma that you can survive and that you can, I mean, that you can, resolve. You can become, you know, someone who feels their emotions and, and enjoys life. And there is, there are tools, there are therapists like Beige, there are people that are there. And the, the, just because once you figure it out, even if you figure out that, yes, I have some, some trauma that I need to, to deal with, you can, you can, and you can do that anytime you can take action and you can really change your life. So, um, the question specifically was, how do we know if our drinking is related to trauma or just an unhealthy habit that we picked up? Yeah. And that it does sometimes take a lot of exploration, but I'd say that um, it can depend on how chronic the addiction has become. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just a habit that you picked up in college and you weren't particularly attached to it, you might find that it's pretty easy to drop. Um, the majority of people who are problem drinkers, believe it or not, um, if we define that as habitually drinking more than the NIAAA guidelines for healthy drinking, right. uh, the majority of those people recover with no intervention at all. Mm. Uh, when you think about college drinking, most people just age out of it. They get serious about their careers. They start a family, whatever. They get focused elsewhere, right? Alcohol doesn't really fit in in the same way, or at least not over drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones for whom the habit lingers and it becomes more chronic and difficult to break, I would say that there's more likely a larger degree of trauma underneath and an underability for the person's nervous system to process that trauma without help. Mm-hmm. Not meaning they can't do it, but as you said, you can right. do it with help. You can learn how to regulate your own nervous system. Mm-hmm. So when I work with problem drinkers, I find it's most effective to parse out the habit from the trauma response and work with each separately, right? So the yeah. habit stuff, you learn a lot of that and you can go to moderation management go to moderation.org go to their meetings you'll hear a lot about how people work with their habits um, you know mm-hmm. no free gaming delay 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 right. eat food first drink other stuff in between there's a million of these tools you can use um, so what i find is effective is working with the internal and the external tools so those two the external tools great and it would also working with, you know, getting to know your system, your nervous system, how can you learn to self-regulate it? You know, it's a lot of what we've been already discussing in this call. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's important to understand why we first started drinking? Or is it just, this was a question from the group, and I, and I actually mm-hmm. really liked this. Is it important to understand mm-hmm. why we first started drinking, or is it more important to just start cutting back? Yeah. And at first, of all, I want to say I'm so thankful for the people that wrote in these questions because they're really good ones. And I'm sure yeah. they're not the only ones that are right, <laughs> wondering exactly. these yeah. things. <laughs> so, um, so the reason it might be helpful to understand is because it's easier to heal something when you, when you know what it is you're healing. Mm-hmm. So if you discovered um, that you started drinking to fit in, for example, as we talked about earlier, you might ask yourself, well, what was important about that? 
um, yes, we all probably wanted to fit in in middle school and high school, and we all felt like we didn't, you know, no matter what. <laughs> but if you ask yourself, what was important to me about fitting in, what was underneath that desire, you might find that underneath that, there might have been a feeling of isolation or loneliness, or I'm somehow less than. Um, and that's, in my opinion, you know, that's sort of where the trauma is. Um, so if you're able to get in touch with that younger part of you, then you can offer healing to your younger self. You know, what can you offer that child and kind of go back, close your eyes, <laughs> breathe deeply and, and see if you can get in touch with that younger part of you as your wise adult self and ask, ask the child, what, what do you need? What did you need? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe the answer comes back. I, the child needed to be heard or listened to. Maybe they needed a hug. Maybe they needed to just be taken out of the situation. One of my clients, I did this with him and he was like, he wants to go outside and play ball. <laughs> like, okay, mm-hmm. take them outside and play ball. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they needed to sprout wings and fly away. doesn't matter if it even makes sense. Mm. But you can have a reparative experience then mm-hmm. with this younger part of you. That's still, like, let's face it, we are ourselves at every age. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, it's all still in there. And then we can heal it. Mm-hmm. As your wise adult self, you can go back and give the child the experience they needed. Bring the child into the present with you and let them know they're okay. Mm-hmm. So if you don't do that inner investigation, you might find you're more likely to be having to white knuckle it quite a bit because you're just working right. with the external tools. Right. Yeah. yeah. I talk about, obviously, you know, I talk about that all the time. I talk about it's our thoughts that lead to our feelings and then the actions, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we just focus on the actions, which is basically what you're saying, if we focus on the tool and we never back up to the feelings and to the yeah. thoughts that are causing the feelings, we cannot mm-hmm. actually change the habit. We can't change what's actually what's going on. We can't change our, our reason for drinking. Right. So we Mm -hmm. have to have Mm -hmm. the, we have to, we have to understand it all. If we really want to have, in my opinion, and I think in yours too, if you want to have true sustainable change, if you want to really, you know, I talk about being an alcohol minimalist and I just, my episode last week was on creating that peaceful relationship and what peaceful Mm -hmm. means and mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you don't get, you don't get yeah. to a peaceful relationship unless you're willing to do this type of inner work. Yeah. And, um, ways to get to that peaceful, maybe we could do another podcast on this and we have to talk about <laughs> how we heal all of the parts, because this is important that people have these parts of themselves that they're at war with all the time. And that creates a lot of not peace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so when they, yeah, so when they can start to, um, and this is where the IFS work comes in so handy, um, is getting to know each part individually and healing it. And, you know, as goofy as it sounds, uh, Frank Anderson, who's one of the uh, leading uh, psychiatrists who works with IFS, will say, <laughs> trauma blocks, love heals. Yeah. Right. So if you can love every part of yourself, no matter how much you don't love it, and find a way um, through deep work to create. And that's how you create a peaceful experience within yourself is to get to know all your parts and get to send, you know, be able to send them love or see the humorous side of them. Mm-hmm. You know, often when I hear my inner critic, I'm like, oh, hi, <laughs> isn't that funny? <laughs> Yeah, welcome. That's that's really kind yeah. of funny. That thank that you comment. for your, and, yeah, exactly. Thank thanks. you for your thank you for your observations. Thanks for your <laughs> feedback. Um, <laughs> right. So so I have a much friendlier relationship with my critical parts than I ever did before, and that helps tremendously. 
Oh, we are definitely doing another episode because <laughs> these are like one of our people love them and I love talking to you and I cannot wait to learn more about IFS. Um, folks, tell us really quickly because we will, we'll do another episode on this, but what it is, you just got recently certified this year in a new, she's got, you know, a laundry list of credentials, folks. So <laughs> if you want to check it out, I'll be her, her links on the website, but um, I mean, I'll link it in the show notes, but tell us about this most recent certification. Well, um, IFS stands for internal family systems, and it's really, uh, it has nothing to do with actual external families. It has to do with the parts that live inside ourselves and, and act as certain, uh, have certain roles, right? Mm -hmm. So we have the, the kind of wounded parts, which they call exiles, the ch child parts. And then we have um, the self, which feels great, fine, self is fine. Um, and then we have the protector parts. So the protector parts, um, we usually fall into two categories and one is proactive, the manager parts um, who kind of manage our lives and keep everything okay, we're feeling okay, okay, feeling safe, going to do this. And then there's the, what they call the firefighters, which are the reactive parts, mm -hmm. uh, which show up when a situation doesn't feel safe mm -hmm. or doesn't feel okay. So uh, in, to, to um, tie this into problem drinking, you might say the manager shows up to say, okay, have a drink before the event, it'll calm your system, and then you can proceed and go into the event. The man, the firefighter would be the one that you're in the event, you see someone that <laughs> uh, for what an ex or something, you're like, oh my God, I need a drink. Ah! And the firefighter says, okay, here, here's how to, I, I know how to fix this, and soothe, right? So, um, I mean, it's kind of a funny way to look at it, but these are basically the, the main categories, right? Mm -hmm. The people, the parts of us that manage our lives and the parts of us that react to stuff. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a simple it's way other, of looking yeah, at it, but it's framework. a very deep, complex um, process of learning it. But, um, but you can learn it on all levels, really. There's a book that's super simple. It's like a, looks like a child's book. It's called, We All Have Parts. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, an illustrated guide to healing trauma with internal family systems. So that if people are interested, yeah, we'll um, put that, we'll put, we'll, we'll link that, that. we'll link that in the show notes too, but yes, let's do another IFS, um, podcast. Cause I'm sure I, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply interested and I know if I'm interested, other people are. So, uh, we will, we'll, we'll fire it up again, folks. So, um, Great. one more, another episode with Beach Christy Carpen. And, uh, on that note though, we will, this one has gone on and we are long <laughs> because we can never stop. We can't just, I know. Uh, it's just, you know, we start talking and like I said, we, you and I could probably talk for hours and we'd be like, oh yeah. And yeah. And then it'd be like, no kidding. oh, oh I have no shoot. Doubt. Oh, wow. That was two hours. That might be a long <laughs> podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, have um, a, a very happy uh, 4th of July. We're recording this right at the beginning of July and yeah. uh, it'll come up. It'll come out just after that. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time, Beige, and everyone go check it out. All the links will be in the show notes to learn more about. And especially if you are someone who feels like trauma is really uh, needing to be addressed in their lives, I highly recommend uh, talking with Bij and figuring out another one of her offerings that might be helpful for you. Thank you, Molly. It's just wonderful to talk with you again. And, um, and have a, as my dad would have said, have a glorious fourth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank Take you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Alcohol Minimalist Podcast. 
This podcast is dedicated to helping you change your drinking habits and to create a peaceful relationship with alcohol. Use something you learned in today's episode and apply it to your life this week. Transformation is possible. You have the power to change your relationship with alcohol now. For more information, please visit me at www.mollywatts.com.